Good morning. Great to see some visitors here this morning. We are continuing in our study of the doctrine of worship. Old-fashioned here. I've got to move to the computer and do all that. Here we go. We are in part eight of our series in worship. And we've kind of, of course, our goal is to set forth the reformed doctrine of worship demonstrate how it's uh, supported by Scripture, uh, to explain what we do and why we do it here at the church, and really to try to open up um, one of our core convictions is that worship and corporate worship is the life and center of a church, or I should say the center of the church's life, whatever way we want to say it. But that's kind of the big picture view of what we're doing in this Sunday School Hour, and basically what we've been doing so far is looking at it, we've approached it from kind of a 30,000 foot view, in that we want to consider the doctrine of worship theologically. Before we even get to the details of worship, we want to look at how other doctrines, or we have been looking at how other doctrines affect our theology of worship. So we've kind of gone through this list. This is what we spent seven weeks on, a little more than planned, but we've been taking it slow. We looked at the doctrine of Scripture. Of course, you've got to believe that Scripture is the Word of God if you're then going to make deductions from Scripture regarding the doctrine of worship. We looked at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man as fallen and sinful, And we looked at the gospel, and we've considered how all of these things kind of affect even just initially approaching the doctrine of worship, and that we've got to get some of these things figured out before we can narrow in and make some definitions and some conclusions regarding worship. So that's kind of what we've been doing, and today we're turning a corner. We're kind of putting all the theological kind of big picture things behind us, And we're going to press on and make some specific applications of these things. We're going to get specific, we're going to get narrow, we're going to, um, again, look at things in greater detail. So, that's kind of review of where where we've come from. I put this up before we started 15 minutes late, so if you have any questions, you can ask them later of where we've come from, where we're going. But our plan for today, again, we're turning the corner here, and we're going to get more specific. Today we're going to begin with just answering the question, what is worship? I mean, it's pretty basic, right? Um, but you've got to start somewhere. What is worship? And what I want to give today is kind of a broad definition of worship. Um, like worship that can be worship of anything, in a sense. With a more specific Christian definition coming next week, and we'll kind of parse that out. So, broad worship that can apply to anything, but specifically a Christian definition of worship in accordance with the, uh, the Word of God coming next week. So, we want to talk about today a, a definition of worship. We want to identify who it is that's called to worship, very briefly. We want to talk about the proper object of worship in the face of counterfeits and idolatry. Um, We want to consider the solution to human idolatry that enables us to worship rightly. And then next week we're going to get specific and narrow things down and 
ask and answer questions such as, is worship all of life? And that's when we're going to get specific to a Christian definition and then parse that out. We're going to discuss public versus private worship, internal versus external worship, uh, things of that nature. So that's kind of where we're going today. So let's get started. You know what the red question mark means? That means I'm throwing it to the audience. (coughs) Can someone provide a, thank you Kim, a basic, broad definition of the word worship? What comes to your mind when you hear the word? I'm worshiping this computer, okay? I'm worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. You're saying it's worthy or valuable. Worthy or valuable. Excellent. You're, you're assessing and judging its worth. Positively. You're positively ex- um, judging its worth. That's very, very uh, uh, specific according to the, to the word itself. Very good. You'll see that in a second. Of course, you know, you know. <laughs> Worship comes from the old English word ascribing worth. Worthship. It is ascribing worth. What else comes to mind, though, when you think of this? Just from your perspective based upon this idea of ascribing worth. How do we ascribe worth to something? Yes. Or more worthy than other things. Anything. Yeah, so we can worship something with our words. That's the greatest movie of all time. Well, maybe not worship a movie, but you ascribe greatness, worth to something above other things. You worship with our thoughts. Worship with our hearts. With our emotions. Right? With our actions. He worships the game of baseball, you know? He gives himself continually to it above any and everything else. So it's ascribing worth, and it's ascribing worth in a variety of different ways that entails basically all of who we are is mind, body, and soul. Worship is. An expression of reverence and adoration specifically of God. So this is something that is reverent, right? Something that's special. It um, deserves adoration. It is, again, worthy and you treat it as worthy. Another definition here, I'm pulling some of these from different um, biblical and theological dictionaries. It is... uh, Homage? Did I say that right? A public or an outward act of honor rendered to God which is sinful to render to any created being, which is idolatry. 
So here you have something that's inward. Uh, you honor something. You ascribe worth to it. And it's expressed in an outward act. In an outward way. So it's the, the intentions of the heart spilling over into an act, a reverent act of honor, public or an outward act of honor to God. And obviously, in, in touching a little bit on the, uh, the biblical definition, this is something which it is sinful to render to a created being, which would be idolatry. It's like when um, John in the book of Revelation falls down and starts to worship the angel because he's overcome with the vision. And the angel says, stand up. You are not to do this. Worship is for God alone. He's, you know, outward act of honor, bowing down to something that is created and is not worthy of worship, which is idolatry. So these are some broad definitions, and we're going to refine these more specifically next week. But (coughs) I want to, again, just start get real basic here on what it means to worship so that we can properly make deductions from there in regards to public worship here at the church. In this sense, worship, ascribing worth, is the reason why we, why all creatures exist. And I think this is, you know, evident if you look even at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Ask the question number 1, what is the chief end of man? What is the goal? What is the highest goal? What is the highest reason? What is the highest purpose? A reason for life and existence. The chief end of man is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Glorifying God, of course, entails much more than worship, but it's certainly not anything less than worship. To properly glorify Him, you have to worship Him. And so in some sense, I think the catechism really nails it in the sense that worship is the reason, the ultimate, the highest reason why we even were created and exist in the first place. We were created ultimately to bring glory, honor, and service to the one who created us. I hope this is basic and not controversial. We're all tracking here. Okay, good. Worship is the reason why we and all creatures exist. We see this in Scripture as well. Worship is the duty of all men and creatures. Very basically, Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This is a call for all the earth to pay this outward public homage to God. A singing, an ascribing to the Lord worth through song. Not just Israel, but all the earth. See this continue there in 96. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. See, the the psalmist is so overcome with the greatness and wonder of God that he's calling on all of creation to join in this outward and public act of worship to God. It is the duty of all creation 
Again, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands, coastlands be glad. The coastlands were the Gentiles from the psalmist's perspective. So, again, creation, all of creation, all of man was created and intended to, uh, for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. Of course, to nail this down more specifically, we see that worship is the particular calling and duty of God's people. We've considered this passage in recent weeks a few times. But in 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why were we chosen? Why were we put into this priesthood? Why were we made holy? Why are we God's special people? So that you may proclaim, that's again, a public outward act of proclamation, the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were saved and regenerated and granted your salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of proclaiming His greatness. Of course, you can do that in many ways. Obviously, not just verbally, but with our lives. But the point is that this is the specific duty of believers. And it is the, uh, the chief reason why we were brought from darkness into light. See this in Romans 12 as well. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or probably better translated, in light or in view of the mercies of God. That means given all that He's done in His mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's worship language. A sacrifice is an act of worship to God, pulling from the Old Testament when you brought your sacrifice. Present your bodies to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This kind of is the all-encompassing, overarching commandment that Paul makes here in Romans 12 as he turns from all of the doctrine, all the glories of what Christ has done, and he turns more specifically to what this means for how we are to then live and act and worship. So it's a particular calling of God's people to worship. course the worship the object of worship very clearly is God alone and it's the duty of all men and creatures we see this from the confession the confession reads in 22.1 the light of nature shows that there is a God so that's something that all men have possession of the light of nature everybody knows everybody that there is a God all of creation. Everybody knows that He has lordship and sovereignty over all. Everybody knows His character, that He's good, just. He does good unto all. Everybody knows this. This is general, common revelation that we can see simply in the things that are made, according to Paul in Romans 1. And what is the response then of that? It's to worship this God. To worship Him in the sense of to fear Him, to love Him, to praise Him, to call upon Him, to trust in Him, to serve Him. So this, again, think about all these things 
that this entails. This is an attitude of the heart, to fear, to love. It's an attitude of the mouth, to praise Him, to call upon Him, to, uh, uh, to sing to Him, to worship Him. It's the, it's the matter of the will, to trust in Him, to serve Him, an, a, an attitude, or not an attitude, an action with the body as well, in obedience, to, to uh, put our bodies to use in serving Him, and to do this with all the heart, with all the soul, with all of our might. That's what worship is. It's the duty of all men, and the object of that duty is God alone. I reminded a little bit here of Vince Lombardi after a, the great football coach for the Green Bay Packers after a horrible loss. The next practice, he stands up in front of everyone, holds up a football, and says, Gentlemen, this is a football. He starts with the very, 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 very basics. Kind of go back to square one. That's kind of what we're doing right here. We're circling back. We're starting at square one, talking about worship, things that hopefully all of you know very well. But I want to turn and talk a little bit now about, although it is the duty of all creatures, what is our natural tendency? Our natural tendency is to be idolaters because of our sinful nature. Because of our love for things of this world. And the chief text for this is in Romans 1, 18-25. I won't read it all, but... Basically, Paul starts off and he says, the wrath of God is being revealed right now from heaven. And this is how it's showing up. And this is why it's showing up. Because, again, his invisible attributes, his power, his nature are clearly seen. People are without excuse. Although all men knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And he goes down and it says... They claimed to be wise, but they were fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creepy creepy things. This is pulling on idolatry, right? Make an image of a bird and bow down to it. Therefore God gave them up, dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's actually definite in the Greek, for the lie. Exchange the truth about God for the lie, because there's only one truth, everything else is the lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Now this, you know, often we'll go to this and we'll talk about homosexuality, we'll talk about all the sins that Paul lists. But he's really, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. You're ungodly, you're unrighteous by nature. So am I, of course. And it's our natural tendency, even after we are regenerated, to gravitate towards idolatry. As John Calvin said, our hearts are factories of idols. We constantly create, manufacture idols, and give ourselves to them. So idolatry, here in this respect, 
is worshiping the wrong things, not God alone, right? It's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. But it's also worshiping the wrong way. Exchange the glory of immortal God for images. That's what we see chiefly in the golden calf episode. We want to see our God. We want to see this one who brought us up out of Egypt. We can't see him. We don't like that. So, Aaron, he, will you please make for us a golden calf and we'll have a feast day to Yahweh, the God who brought us up out of Egypt. They were worshiping in the wrong way. They, they claimed that the golden calf was the Lord. Well, they weren't saying it was another God. They were worshiping in accordance with making images and bowing down to it. So, I want to ask you guys now, we have ten minutes here, what kind of things are we tempted to worship instead of God alone? And what kind of things does our culture tend to worship? Now, I ask this question so that you understand that our, we're much more sophisticated nowadays. We don't make, generally speaking, in our society, in American Western civilization, we generally don't make golden calves and bow down to them. So does that mean that we're not guilty of idolatry? What are some of the things that come to mind that you think of that we're tempted to worship instead of God alone? Chris? Leisure. Leisure. That hurts. <laughs> Perhaps our good works. Our good works. Money. Money. Absolutely. Ethan? Video games. Someone else's circumstances. Someone else's circumstances. Wow. Yes. Novelty? I'd say our image is a huge one as far as social media goes. Yeah, you don't even realize you're doing it. Right. <laughs> yep. I'd say relationships. Relationships? Yeah, so when we think about ascribing worth to something above all else, there's a whole lot of things that come to mind, huh? And generally, we don't think of them as worship. But when we look, as we'll talk about in a second, at how we reverence these things, how we treat them, how we react when they're taken from us, it really reveals what's going on. So, yeah, I put down some examples. Money, material, possessions, power, prestige, control, comfort, entertainment, amusement, leisure, Sex, pleasure, passions of the lust, cravings of the body, honor, pride, vainglory, self-righteousness. How do we worship these things? What does it look like? If I were to ask you that. So think of... A few of you who said, um, 
leisure or images or money. What does worship of those things look like? Brian? I think it's kind of like Yeah. Time, resources, money, excessive attention. And the key there is excessive. It's not wrong to give attention to money or to leisure or to good deeds. But excessive attention to something other than God, or I should say, above God, greater than God. Spencer. Yes. Yeah, when, you're, when you will sin in order to get that. Right? We'll talk about that in a second. Deriving undue affection. Again, undue is the key here, ex- or excessive. Affection, or comfort, or joy, or satisfaction, or pleasure, or sense of purpose, or fulfillment from something other than God. It's inordinate, right? It's not wrong to grab joy, to get joy from legitimately making money. Or the enjoyment of pleasure. But undue or excessive affection. Or sense of purpose that swallows up your life other than God. It's excessive serving or becoming dependent upon something other than God. Right? when you can't live without it now. Or that you feel like you won't have the safety or fulfillment or for, of security in life without it, something other than God. Setting our, our minds and our thoughts and our affections on something is greater than God. All of these ways in which we worship when we are willing to see don't I get to that one. Yeah, when we're when we're willing to sin in order to get something, or we sin and respond with anger or despair or depression or sorrow when something is taken away from us. When we lose our sense of purpose, our sense of fulfillment, our sense of satisfaction, when we, when something is taken away from us or we don't have what we want. Now, I'm going to have a quote here from uh, Tim Keller, this book, Counterfeit Gods. It's um, on the front table. You can pick a copy up. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I, I will say that um, you've got to read Tim Keller cautiously. His methods of ministry and different things I think we'll have some differences with. But I love him on this subject, the subject of idolatry and the subject of um, counterfeit gods that we create in our culture. And I highly recommend the book to you. But what he says here is, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So that can be whatever it is we look at and we say that to. 
We know something is an idol when we lose, uh, lose or feel we will lose our peace, happiness, or fulfillment in life without it. When we despair or fall into excessive anxiety or depression at the loss of it or the thought of the loss of it, when we are willing to sin in order to obtain it. All right, got to wrap this up. So, the true worship of God alone as opposed to idolatry is not something that Christians just instinctively do perfectly. My point here is that our hearts are idol factories. And we continue to battle the natural idolatry of our sinful flesh, even as redeemed people of God. And so remembering that idolatry is not just worshiping the wrong God, but worshiping Him in the wrong way, is critical to forming a proper doctrine of worship. In fact, even in our culture, many Christians in our day worship the right God, but they worship Him in very wrong ways, even in the church. And that's where I'm going with this in the weeks ahead. Of course, our cure for our idolatry is the work of Christ on our behalf, cleansing us from His sin, dressing us in His righteousness, raising and ascending to rule and reign over us, and the work of the Spirit applies these benefits to us in progressive Sanctification gives us these new hearts, new desires, new affections. This is regeneration and sanctifies us through the Word of God and the means of grace, leading us into a greater understanding of the truth so that we might by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. (coughs) So that essentially is what I want to open up and parse out next week. Worship is ascribing worth and honor and excellency to God. It's the duty of all creatures. It's the special duty of God's people. But our natural tendency is idolatry. This is where the work of Christ comes in to apply His redemptive uh, uh, benefits to us by the Spirit, to renew our hearts, to set our affections on Him, and Him alone as a cure for idolatry, which is a lifelong process of sanctification, pulling us away from these idols so that we devote ourselves to the true and proper worship of our God. So where I want to go from here is that we're going to define worship more narrowly in light of these things, in light of the work of Christ, in light of our natural idolatry, we're going to come up with a more specific Christian definition of worship, And this will lead us into seeing worship as both something that's internal, of the heart, but also as external in what we do, which will lead us into helping us distinguish what is public worship versus private worship, internal worship versus external worship, and thus answering the question, is all of life worship, which will then lead in several weeks ahead into getting into the specifics of what we do in the context of public and corporate worship, what is permissible and what isn't. Any questions? Any last comments? Any rebuttals? All right. Quiet group this morning. Well...
Oh, I didn't say anything controversial. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Nathan. I'll try to remedy that next time, okay? <laughs> we will definitely get controversial here in the coming weeks, without a doubt. I mean, just answering the question is all of life worship. I mean, yeah, people, Christians are quick to draw their swords on that one. But let's, uh, let's close in prayer.